Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Nerds Adulting. Today, Ruthie and I had the pleasure to speak with Michael Katz, who was a video games pioneer during the 1980s. He worked for Mattel as marketing director, Coleco as vice president of marketing, president of Epix, Atari, and president of Sega of America while he oversaw the launch of the Sega Genesis. His stories are pretty amazing, and I hope you all enjoy the interview. Hello. Hi, is this Michael? Yes, this is Peter. Hi, Michael. Yeah, this is Peter. How you doing? Fine, thanks. Yourself? Uh, not too bad. I'm <laughs> really uh, excited to talk to you. Thank you for coming on today. Um, I'm joined by Ruthie as well. So uh, my co-host, her name is Ruthie. She's here as well to uh, join in on this uh, interview and discussion with you, if that's okay. Great, of course. Hi, Ruthie. Hi. Um, can you hear me okay? I can hear you. How about you, Ruthie? Yep, I can hear you. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I got to say, I'm really excited to talk talk with you um, just to give you a little bit of a background um genesis was really huge for me as, as a kid growing up i was born in 83 um atari was as well not as much as the genesis and i was just doing some research on trying to um you know bring on a guest and then and i came across your name uh, a year ago and i really wanted to talk with you and it turns out you've done a lot of a lot of stuff uh basically going over your career and you've had you're basically a pioneer in my opinion um of the game industry and i'm just really happy to have you on so thanks again um and i'm just really happy to have you on today my pleasure um so what i normally do is when i have a guest on we usually start off with the question uh it's like a nerd question um so for you when you were growing up were you a nerd were you into certain things as a kid growing up was did you collect stuff did you play games and things like that what was it like for you growing up as a nerd i grew up in manhattan and uh lived on the upper east side uh, I went to uh, the Dalton School, if you've heard of it, uh, and then Riverdale Country School up in the Bronx. Uh, I had a sister who was four years older than me, still do. My parents were in department store retailing. My mother met my father at Macy's back in the 1930s when they were both buyers. My mother claimed to be the best handbag buyer in the world, and my <laughs> father was uh, uh, a buyer of men's clothing. And uh, so they met at Macy's. My father went on to Gimbel's, which is little known these days as a department store, uh, and then was in retailing the rest of his life. And so I sort of grew up in a retail family, and I really enjoyed merchandise and uh, seeing merchandise, learning about new products. Uh, when I had time off on the weekends, I would often walk 30 or 40 blocks down to uh, the department store area on Lower Fifth Avenue or Madison Avenue and go through Bloomingdale's and other stores just, you know, seeing how they were displaying merchandise and what was new in the area of clothing, toys, household goods, and stuff like that. So uh, that was kind of my interest that related to business. Uh, I liked sports. I, uh, you know, played football and, uh, and tennis in school. I went to summer camp in Maine and did a lot of activities there uh, for Eight Street Summers. Uh, I was a riflery counselor because I liked target shooting uh, in those days and later did some target shooting at college on on the Cornell rifle team. Uh, I had a bicycle in Manhattan. I'd get on the bike and ride through Central Park. I'd sometimes go to the tennis courts. I had a tennis permit, which was offered by the 
the city and uh, my father played tennis. He was a good athlete. So we did stuff together. And um, so I had, uh, you know, the normal, nice childhood growing up in Manhattan and being being a big city boy um, <laughs> and enjoying the beach and the Maine in the summers and, uh, you know, just getting together with friends, doing sports, having a social life and uh, that kind of thing during the regular school year. Nice. Uh, I love it. As, oh, as far as playing, there weren't there were no video games in those days. <laughs> so yeah. I, I I I liked playing with toy soldiers. I I was in the army as a result of being in ROTC for for uh, my time at Cornell. I went to Cornell undergraduate, and then I went straight into the army and was a military police lieutenant at Fort Ord, which was a basic training center on the West Coast, sort of like Fort Dix and the East Coast. And uh, I grew up being somewhat uh, interested in uh, law enforcement and uh, p- the police and the West Point and uh, sort of ceremonial stuff related to uh, the country. Uh, I was interested in military history, I was interested in American history in general. And um, so, uh, like, you know, most boys in those days, I, uh, I remember... <laughs> Once being in the peanut gallery uh, on the Howdy Doody show on television when te- television was very young. Uh, so that was fun. And um, just, uh, you know, playing soldiers, playing uh, games that were board games or action games, Stratego, stuff like that, playing playing canasta and poker and gin. Uh, my grandmother was a big canasta player. But it was, you know, a fairly normal upbringing uh, in New York City at that time. Uh, and uh, I had a fascination with the West Coast and California, and I didn't really get to California till uh, 1964 when I graduated from Cornell and uh, went out to San Francisco and Northern California prior to my going to Fort Ord, which was in Monterey and Carmel. So I was really lucky to have gotten that assignment uh, during the beginning of the Vietnam War, so it saved me from going to Vietnam, mm. and I was stationed at Fort Ord for two years, lived in Monterey and Carmel, which was a luxury tour in the Army. I talk about having fought the Battle of the Monterey Peninsula when uh, <laughs> everyone else le- less fortunate was being sent to Vietnam, mm. and uh, I had always been interested in retailing. I ended up uh, going to business school and not concentrating in retailing because at that time in the late 60s, uh, very few of the business schools had a retailing concentration. They had marketing, which was as close to retailing as possible. So I, I basically uh, got my concentration in marketing. And when I got out of Columbia, I was on an accelerated program for, I guess, uh, it was four semesters, but you went straight through during the summers uh, if you wanted to go through this program, which was... Uh, what would it have been, um, 12, 15 months, I guess, altogether. I, I uh, almost took a job for MBAs, an accelerated MBA program that Bloomingdale's had at the time. And it was between that and going to work in consumer products marketing, basically grocery marketing, uh, which was popular in those days. And anyone who was going into marketing uh, wanted to get a job with companies like Procter & Gamble or Gillette or General Foods, or Lever Brothers, or Colgate, uh, mm-hmm. and I uh, 
took my first job with Lever Brothers uh, when I got out of Columbia. But I looked at Leo Burnett in Chicago, which was a uh, very prominent ad agency and still is, but at that time was one of the top five or ten uh, headquartered in Chicago. So it was between Leo Burnett, uh, Hershey, uh, the chocolate company, which had just started an MBA program, and I was really interested because it was a uh, small company at that time with a very good opportunity for MBAs. They only took three or four, and I would have been in the second year of the program. So that was tempting, and I love chocolate. But I, uh, <laughs> it's a good, I, it's I good thought, reason. <laughs> I thought living and working in Hershey would have been a little bit uh, too rural and too small because I had grown up in New York, so mm-hmm. I didn't do it. As it turned out, they they stopped the MBA program a few years later because the MBAs they had hired uh, who were supposed to run the world at Hershey after the program started turned out not to being as great as Hershey had hoped. So it was between Hershey, Lever Brothers, Leo Burnett, and Bloomingdale's, and I chose Lever Brothers and uh, went to Lever and was a, uh, a marketing assistant and a assistant brand manager uh, on a few of Lever's largest uh, um, detergent brands, actually brands that people in most of the country had never heard of. Breeze and Silverdust, uh, their brands that competed with two brands from Procter & Gamble called Bonus, and I forget the other one, but uh, they were detergent products that had in-pack in premiums. So you not only got the detergent, but you got uh, inside the box uh, a towel in the case of uh, Breeze, uh, or you got plates or glasses. Uh, So Procter & Gamble and Lever competed mostly in the Southwest and Midwest with these two brands that were value-oriented detergents and that they gave you a basic detergent, but they also gave lower-income families stuff that they needed, um, towels, and this still exists, by the way, towels and uh, glasses and silverware and stuff like that. So I was actually in the towel business rather than the product being new in terms of the actual detergent every season. We actually came up with new towel designs, and Canon was our largest supplier, we were the largest customer of Canon in the world, and it was all about <laughs> what the new designs for the towels look like. Uh, <laughs> but yet, yet that, that was the second and third largest detergent brands at Lever, and at Procter & Gamble it was probably uh, third or fourth uh, compared to Tide and some of their other better-known brands. So uh, that's a long answer to a short question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. Thank you for sharing that. No, it's great. I, I love... Um, <clears throat> I actually loved hearing about, I, I love just old, I guess, because I'm younger, obviously I'm younger than you, um, but I love like old world aesthetic. And so when you talked about, I mean, you basically grew up like in the glory days of department stores. Like um, I've never been in one, but I have heard of gimbals and things like that. And just like the whole glamour of it, like it was a whole experience back then, I think. So I could see why it drew you in. Like, for sure. You're right. My, my sister worked at Ann Taylor and Lord & Taylor for her whole career. She was a, a fashion publicist and fashion merchandiser. And uh, she really led the kind of life you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> and at one time, at one time, worked for a woman named Eleanor Lambert, who is one of the uh, most famous fashion publicists mm-hmm. in those days. Uh, 
who represented, you know, client companies that were department stores or designers. And, uh, yeah. And my sister was in the, uh, before that was in the Macy's, um, Macy's buyer program or executive training program, they called it. Yeah. Um, my, my ex-wife worked at Lord and Taylor, uh, for a year, year and a half when I was at Columbia as an assistant buyer. And my daughter who is now at the gap and, uh, works for all three of their brands, uh, started out working at Levi's, uh, I'm sorry, Macy's in California as an <laughs> assistant buyer, went to Levi's and then went to the Gap. So, uh, those are some old, you know, retail names. Yeah. Older. Yeah. And, mains. Uh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. But in the, in those, in those days, buyers, uh, the best buyers were the ones that had very good gut judgment and mm-hmm. product judgment because they would basically, based on judgment, uh, you know, pick how heavily they wanted to buy certain merchandise from different suppliers. Uh, now it's become all about, you know, digitized. With It's all about the numbers. It's all quantitative. Uh, it's, you know, all yeah. done on computer. And uh, so a lot of that judgment that made for who was a hot buyer or merchandise manager is no longer the case because it's become a pretty mechanized job. Yeah, definitely. Well, so then how did you, so, um, yeah, no, it definitely, it has changed. It's all changed so much from back then. That's why I guess I was so fascinated by hearing that because it's such a different world now. Um, Mm -hmm. so speaking of that, speaking of like such a different, I guess in my head, this, it's just so fascinating. So how, how did, how and where did your, career begin that kind of started you on the video games because because you went from like towel designs and then (laughs) was it like was it Mattel that was next or like how did you kind of get into the door or how did that happen any any good little marketing person male or female (laughs) in those days would get an MBA at you know a business school graduate school because there was not many undergraduate business programs so uh you know, uh, there were MBA programs at the places that they still are that were the most well-known, uh, not to say that, you know, there were any better, but, you know, you would go to Wharton or you would go to Harvard or you would go to, uh, Columbia, uh, mm-hmm. uh, whatever had a good graduate MBA program. You had to pick a concentration, uh, in New York at Columbia, most of the, uh, students picked finance because very many of them, men and women, wanted to go to Wall Street either because they had relatives or friends uh, at Wall Street or they just were fascinated by the financial world and Wall Street and brokerage. So a lot did that. I did marketing because I loved product. I loved, uh, you know, how products got promoted and um, retailing would have been at a local level like Bloomingdale's would have been working, you know, in a department at Bloomingdale's as an assistant buyer initially and basically then staying with a department store or department store chain. Uh, but since there wasn't retailing offered, marketing basically meant brand, national brand marketing. You would go to a Procter & Gamble or a Lever Brothers, you would be put on a, a brand, uh, and you would be responsible for uh, product development, new product planning, uh, mm-hmm. advertising, promotion, packaging, naming, and that was dealing directly with product, but on a national basis, where you had uh, heavy national advertising and promotion and public relations plans. So that was the closest to retailing, and so that's why I, that's why 
I concentrated in marketing and decided that I'd rather, you know, be spending uh, or being responsible for a multi-million dollar advertising budget and selling a product all over the country to all kinds of uh, demographic and target audience rather than just being a, an assistant buyer at one mm-hmm. department store in one city. So I did that and I did it with Lever Brothers and any any good marketing young people at that time, uh, if you went into brand management or consumer products or grocery products marketing, uh, the natural progression was that you worked your way up at a company or you worked your way up at an ad agency uh, and or you got experience at both early early in your career. Mm-hmm. That was like what the resumes were all about and the credentials that were needed to try to ultimately become vice president of marketing or head of uh, marketing or president of a grocery products or consumer products company. So uh, I was at Lever Brothers. I wanted to get to San Francisco after I'd been in the Army out in San Francisco area for two years. So I I looked for a consumer products job uh, that I could trade my Lever Brothers experience for and get out to San Francisco. I was told it was impossible. I interviewed with a J. Walter Thompson advertising guy. Uh, I said, I want to, you know, go to San Francisco and be in marketing. And he said to me, I'll never forget it. He said to me, I guess this was during an interview when I was getting out of Columbia. He said, well, San Francisco, pause, 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 is a great place to retire to. And at that time, San Francisco was all about the wine companies, uh, you know, mm. United Vintners, Gallo, smaller wine companies. It was about Del Monte and Dole. So there were two big food companies. It was about a few banks, Bank of America, Wells Fargo. It was about coffee companies, Hill Brothers and Folgers. But there was no Silicon Valley. There was no, you know, toy company. There were no video game companies. The video game industry didn't exist. So mm-hmm. this was in the, the, the late 60s. So uh, I followed I followed my dream to get to uh, San Francisco. I joined a company called Foremost, which was a major dairy company in San Francisco, which later became the foremost and foremost McKesson. But I, mm. I joined them as a marketing manager because they wanted, you know, marketing people with grocery products experience, like the experience I got at Lever Brothers. So uh, that got me to San Francisco. Uh, I then went to McCann Erickson, the advertising agency, uh, as an account executive in San Francisco, because uh, that was the natural progression that I mentioned before, where you mm-hmm. wanted to have company experience and then advertising agency experience. So I was an account executive. I became an account supervisor. I worked on United Vintners, which was the wine company that owned uh, Andy Greensprings, if you remember the name. Mm-hmm. Uh, they owned Italian Swiss Colony. They owned Inglenook. They were number two to Gallo. And maybe that started my experience of often being number two and number three and <laughs> wanting to be the Avis in uh, the Avis Hertz, you know, battle and oh. uh, try to become number one because we were competing against, you know, in that case, Gallo and later in my career, different companies that were either in the industry or category first or were larger. And I got a kick out of trying to, you know, beat the number one guys. But anyhow, I went to work for McCann Erickson. I worked on wine, which was strange because I don't drink wine. I don't like wine. <laughs> uh, I thought I thought being an account executive at an ad agency, if you were a smart marketing person 
and creative and had great ideas for things like packaging and advertising and promotion. Um, being an account executive was a stifling job because uh, the agencies at that time were so separated functionally. It was media, it was creative, and it was account work. The account guys just tried to sell the advertising to the clients. In that case, our client was United Vintners. Uh, I brought Foremost in as a client. Del Monte and Dole were clients, as I mentioned. So the account guys, which still exist to some extent in the old-fashioned agencies, just basically carried the uh, carried the briefcase and got together with their counterparts at the companies and tried to sell the TV, you know, storyboards or commercials or print ads that the creative department had developed. So if you were creative, you weren't putting any of your creative brain work to, to work because you weren't in the creative department. Uh, that was just the creative people, the copywriters and the art directors. So I thought it was, you know, kind of boring, not challenging, and I didn't like it, but I stayed for three or three and a half years. And during that time, I got uh, during that time I got an initial call um, from Mattel at at one point early on, uh, but I wasn't particularly interested in what they had to say. But after three years and having had enough of account work, <laughs> I got a call. I got a call one day from uh, the guy who was the outside executive search recruiter for Mattel. Uh, this was in uh, 1973 or four, I guess it was. And uh, he said that Mattel was starting a new job called uh, marketing, new product category marketing, which meant trying to get Mattel into categories of toys and games that they had either never, never tried to get into before or had failed to get into. And in the game area, uh, that meant traditional and kids action games because Milton Bradley, Parker Brothers, Shopper, Lakeside, Ideal, they were the big game people. Mattel had tried and failed. Uh, that was the also in the, the toy truck category uh, where Tonka and Buddy L and Ertl had uh, the large share of the market with metal trucks, if you remember that at all. They're still out there. Mm-hmm. And so that was the category that you know, that was a category that Mattel had never tried to get into. Um, and there were other categories. So the job description was get Mattel into categories uh, that were large that they were not in and uh, had tried to get into or had not, and to get Mattel into completely new categories that, you know, no one had thought of before. Uh, and basically come up with the product concepts, work with the you know, design department and the engineering department at Mattel to develop the products, then develop the marketing around the products, meaning naming, packaging, advertising, promotion, PR, go out and uh, do the market research, pitch the products, the key accounts, uh, which in those days were Toys R Us, KB, Walmart, Sears, Pennies, Montgomery Ward. Those were the big five or six, as you remember, mass merchants for any category of product. And uh, in those days, you didn't learn about the products uh, online. The medium to learn about the Christmas products, if it was a toy business, was, as you might recall, or your parents or grandparents could tell you, was all about the catalogs, mm-hmm. the Sears catalog, mm-hmm. the Montgomery Ward catalog. Yep. They would come out in October. It was every kid, every family, whether you were in rural uh, Idaho or Nebraska or in a big city like New York, Everyone, you know, as I recall, 
was just waiting for that catalog to land at the front door and would spend hours going through it, picking out the products they wanted to give as gifts or to get as presents for Christmas. So, mm-hmm. um, so Carter Comerford, who was the store member's name, who was the uh, executive recruiter for Mattel, asked me if I wanted to uh, come to Mattel and become the first marketing manager at that time. I then became a director after that. But the area was new product category marketing. And uh, why me and why my background? Because up to that point, Mattel, Hasbro, um, you know, Shopper, Fisher-Price, uh, all the toy companies uh, had a lot of um, ingrown or gut gut knowledge or gut uh, capability executives in sales and marketing in the toy industry who didn't really have the disciplined uh, consumer packaged goods marketing background in terms of uh, concept development, market research, ideation, uh, packaging, the discipline of strategies and objectives and detailed marketing plans that we had in grocery products. So they wanted uh, someone, I was the first, I guess, to come in with that kind of a background and bring the marketing discipline, uh, you know, marketing plan strategies, you know, uh, reviews quarterly uh, to Mattel. So uh, they picked me to do it uh, and uh, it sounded great. I'd never been in the toy business. But, you know, Mattel was number one. Everybody knew Mattel. And Mm -hmm. Mattel was in Los Angeles, so that was still California. And so uh, I became the marketing manager at that point for new product categories and basically set up the function and set up the category. And uh, that's how I got to Mattel. And uh, we attempted to do new products uh, for Mattel in traditional game categories uh, classic board games, kids' action games. We got into the uh, truck category, and we went out and got the license from Caterpillar, which I remember presenting the prototype in, in uh, whatever state, Illinois, I guess, that Caterpillar was in. So we got the first license from Caterpillar um, in the game area. We got the Hawaiian Punch license, Superman <laughs> license, stuff like that, and we put wow. them on games that the game designers at Mattel had uh, – had developed. And so I had the wonderful job of, uh, you know, reviewing the concepts for new products in those categories, working with the designers to uh, uh, develop the product and then the marketing for the product. And at one point in a 1974-75, uh, in a meeting with a guy named Richard Chang, who was one of the design directors at Mattel, Mattel used internal designers that were full-time employees and used outside independent designers to come up with new toys and games every year. And if you were in the doll category, you made your trip to the various outside designers and you worked with inside designers and whoever had the best concepts for new products, those products went into the product line for 18 months or two years later. And so I met with Richard Chang at one point, who was the um, sort of new technology uh, as well as other products design director and had about 10 designers working for him. And uh, I said, uh, you know, um, I said, Richard, do you know what the hottest new uh, consumer electronics product is? And he said, no. And I asked a few other people and they didn't know. And I'm going to ask you guys, what was the hottest consumer electronics product that was a portable product 
back in the 1970s and early 80s? What's the answer? I feel like I'm cheating a bit because of the book you recommended. Was it LED <laughs> handheld games? Was that was that no, the big thing at the time? The, the the LED calculator, the portable oh, calculator. That's right. Oh, so close. Hand, hand, <laughs> hand, handheld or tabletop, battery powered. Everyone had to have the electronic uh, calculator because there had never been one. And the magic was that it was fast. Uh, it was small. It was portable. But the magic was it was electronic. And LEDs popped up. And you did your math, uh, division, subtraction, multiplication, as you recall. You did it with the electronic calculator. Now you do it with just one app that's on your iPhone, <laughs> which happens to be called your calculator app. So everybody, whether you used a calculator in those days or not, uh, you know, whether you're in business or for the home or a student, you played with your calculator and you love just punching the keys and the LEDs with the numbers pop back and forth. And it cost what twenty nine ninety five, thirty nine ninety five. So I said to Richard, design an electronic game. I don't know what it is, but design one that is like an electronic calculator. It's portable. It uses LED technology, and it has the magic that everyone now on the consumer side is getting out of a calculator, which they probably don't use for math. They just use to fool <laughs> around with after they buy it. So. Uh, about a month later, in the meetings I would have with those guys, you know, every week or several times a week, they presented a prototype to me of uh, a breadboard, which is just like the lens of an electronic product, you know, just the lens uh, with no housing. And they said, here it is. And I said, what is it? And they said, it's the first electronic game. And uh, I said, what's the concept? And they said, it's obstacle avoidance. It's uh you know, a vertical uh, LED screen, and uh, there's a little LED blip at the bottom. That's you, and uh, you're trying to work your way to the top of the screen, if you can picture a vertical uh, lens, mm -hmm. and other, bl other blips are coming down at you, and your job is to avoid getting hit by the blips coming down at you by moving your blip to the right, left, up, or down, and... Uh, so I tried it. Everybody in the design department obviously had tried it before they showed it to me, the marketing guy. And I thought it was fascinating. And uh, I said, okay, what is it? And uh, they said, or we all said, well, we can theme it to anything that makes sense. And so we said, let's do some B-sheet designs. That was the term for, you know, uh, an art, artwork of a particular product, housing and all. Uh, mm -hmm. After the concept of the product was presented, you had to, you know, what does the actual product look like? So we said, what could this be, imagination-wise? What could your blip at the bottom be that you're working up? And so we thought about it, and, uh, you know, one thought was, you're in a race car, and you're trying to get by other race cars as you're going around the track. So the fact that they're coming down at you really is the same as you're passing them, and uh, you're trying to pass them, get to the end of the uh, racetrack uh, without, you know, getting running out of gas or getting knocked out or running into another car. So auto race seemed logical. Football seemed logical. How about you're a running back 
but now picture the screen being uh, flat, lying in front of you, and being horizontal from right to left. It could be a football field, and uh, your, your running back is at one end, and he's trying to score a touchdown at the other end, and while he's trying to get there, these blips are coming at you, and the blips are defensive uh, tacklers, linemen, backs from the other team. So you're trying to avoid them. Uh, we had a few other themes. And so being, being a traditional marketing guy, what do you do? You do drawings of all these themes. Mm-hmm. You take the prototype of the actual product and uh, you go into quantitative and qualitative research sessions to ask potential buyers, consumers, game players, what they think of it, whether they like it, what it should cost, blah, blah, blah. So research played a big role, and uh, we researched the product in focus groups and quantitatively, but mostly focus groups. And uh, the audience that we tested, which was, uh, I think at that time, maybe uh, kids game players who were 6 to 12, uh, we later made it, you know, six to 16, six to 18. And in the focus groups, uh, there was great reaction to the concept, great reaction to the product. And the theme that was, you know, picked number one was football. Uh, number two was auto race. And then came sports like baseball and other things and other themes. But clearly the first two or three were football, auto race, and uh, forget whether it was basketball or what. But the prototype and the housing um, would uh, our opportunity to do the first product was dictated somewhat by speed. We wanted to get it out into the field and see if it actually sold, you know, in a test market or rollout. And it was easiest to do auto race as a housing. So we basically made auto race the first product to be manufactured followed by football and the five or six other products in the line. And uh, I took the prototype, I took the drawings out to uh, buyers and merchandise managers at all the accounts that you mentioned, which is what we did with all the products. Because Mm -hmm. in those days, the challenge was not to get the consumer to buy the product initially, it was to get the key retail outlets, the mass merchants and the toy, national toy chains, 10 accounts, um, you know, controlled about 70% of the overall toy and game business. So if you couldn't get your product into, you know, at least six or seven of those 10 key accounts, you were never going to get enough distribution to have the product create enough awareness, enough takeaway for you to have a, a real hit product and sell a million or more units. So the key was to first get the buyers to buy in, uh, at the chains, Toys R Us, KB, Walmart, Sears, Pennies, etc. So the job was to go out at an early stage because we weren't going to go into manufacturing a product that we couldn't get distribution for because then we could never sell a decent amount of the product because we didn't have enough retailers. So before ever spending that kind of money, uh, the smart marketing people made these retailers your partner basically in developing the product uh, way before you had to manufacture it. Go out to see John Street, the Sears game buyer, see what he thinks. If he likes it, ask him to estimate how many units he would need initially, blah, 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 do the same thing at, uh, at Sears, um, which actually were the most enthusiastic initially 
buyers of of console video games and of the handhelds. The Sears buyer, whose name was um, I, think, I forget his name, but he was really the guy that took the largest position initially of all the mass merchants. So uh, you asked me how I got to Mattel and how we got into electronic games. We started the electronic game category. That's how it started. It Mm. turned out to be a giant success for Mattel, uh, Mm. the company that actually really uh, built their whole reputation and wealth based on it was Tiger Electronics. You probably remember Tiger. Mm -hmm. Tiger developed a whole company, Randy Rissman out of Chicago and Roger Schiffman, his marketing guy, uh, went after licenses like crazy. And if you remember the old catalogs of all the products from Tiger, they had about 60 or 70 SKUs uh, uh, initially uh, for the handhelds, having gotten the licenses they could from uh, arcade companies and everyone else. And they and uh, Activision, or was it Acclaim, Acclaim, uh, which was run by some guys who started Activision, Greg Fishback, uh, who was the head of international at Activision, started a claim. Those two companies, you know, built their whole product line based on handhelds. And as mm-hmm. you remember, Tiger, Tiger was sold to Hasbro for for a lot of money in those days. I forget the amount, but much, much more than the $14 million dollars that Nolan, Nolan Bush now got paid by Warner for selling Atari. Um, wow. So that's, that's the start. And uh, um, that got me interested in video games. I guess I became the, the longest-term video game marketing guy in the industry and went on to introduce, I think, um, more successful hardware products, handheld and uh, console than anyone else has did then or has introduced because it included um, in television, if you want to say that that came out of the Mattel handhelds. So in television, which I didn't work on, but I would have if I stayed at Mattel, I went on to Coleco to be their first head of marketing. And uh, we did electronic quarterback. We did the head to head uh, two player uh, handheld game line. We did the miniature tabletop arcade games, Pac-Man, Junior Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, the little ones that sat on your table and were about seven or eight inches tall and resembled actual full-size arcade games. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we, of course, we did ColecoVision. And uh, then I was at Epix, where we didn't do hardware, but we did a lot of software, computer game software. And then at Atari, we redid the 2600. Uh, made it smaller, made it affordable to lower income game players, uh, sold it for under $50. There was a singing commercial about it, if you remember, which pitched the Atari 2600 at under mm-hmm. $50 and games at under $14 or $15, most of them under $10. And we came out with the 7800. Uh, it was sort of introduced by the old Atari but we had to develop more games for it, which we can get into if you want to know how we did that. Uh, of course, we were competing against Nintendo in those days. And then I went to Sega, and uh, we did Genesis. So uh, I think that gives me the honor of having introduced more hardware than anybody, but I'm not sure, and it doesn't really matter anyhow. 
But <laughs> but I, I, I loved it, and uh, it was a lot of fun in those days, especially making the introductions of the handheld games in Mattel to uh, people who had the same reaction at retail, the retail buyers and merchandise managers. Uh, they got as excited in about 80% of the cases as we did when we first saw the prototype and thought about what this could turn into. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say that's really cool because as a kid um, growing up, I played a lot of those Tyco games like Double Dragon, um, the race car games. And I, I think Nintendo even, didn't Nintendo copy that? They had a, a line of their own uh, LED Mario games too, if I remember correctly. Um, so it's kind of interesting. You're the person that created this. That was a huge part of my childhood of playing all these games on long car rides. So that's really cool. Um, I do. I am curious about your time with uh, Atari because I know, um, I believe there almost could have been the Atari Genesis. Uh, so I'm kind of curious of, one, how you got to Atari and what happened with the, the, the Genesis and Atari. That's a pretty interesting story, so I'll be happy to tell you. Um, <laughs> I, I knew I knew the Tremels vaguely, Jack and Sam, you know, his oldest son, and uh, Gary was uh, the youngest son, and he actually had been with Merrill Lynch, and Leonard was an engineer. So uh, I knew them from having been, you know, at Mattel uh, and at Coleco, and they knew me. Um, from having, you know, been at the industry, Jack started Commodore with a guy named Gould in Philadelphia. And anyhow, I knew them. So uh, when I went to Epix, uh, which I went to because uh, it was an opportunity to turn around uh, a very conservative, text-oriented, serious computer game company that was losing money and try to make it into a, a hot uh, mass market video game, uh, video computer game company. Um, I took that opportunity. That's why I left Coleco and I got to return to San Francisco, which I wanted to do where my kids were and where I wanted to be. And, uh, I was president. I hadn't been president of any company. I got stock options. So I went with epics and we did a pretty good job in six months of, uh, helping this fledgling company that was going bankrupt turn around and go from uh, very small sales and a loss to seven and a half million in sales from uh, what was it from I think 400,000 in six months and become profitable. So I guess that got the attention of a few people. And um, so Jack Tremel uh, called me one day and asked to have lunch. Uh, I got together for lunch with Jack and Sam. Uh, Jack had just recently bought Atari from Warner just for debt, not for any money, but just with borrowed money. Uh, and, uh, and they said, um, we want to bring back the video game category. Uh, we want to start a new computer, uh, and we're going to call it the ST computer, and we want it to be the Commodore 64 of the 1980s. In other words, they <laughs> wanted Atari to have a popular-priced, state-of-the-art computer, just like Jack had had when he was with Gould and they started and ran Commodore 10 years prior to that. And, uh, they said, we need someone to bring back the video game category, get the 2600 generating sales and profits, uh, properly introduce the 7800 
get more games for the 7,800, get more games for the 2,600. And, uh, you know, what would it take to get you to be the guy to do that? And, um, I actually like hardware a lot better than software in terms of developing hardware and working on it. And I was pitching the board of directors at Epics over and over again to get into the hardware business and to get into the portable or handheld business, uh, or the console business with unique product. And they kept turning me down. And uh, so I was anxious to do something other than just more computer games. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, had been, I had been thinking about the concept of uh, doing a Worlds of Wonder type company. If you remember Don Kingsborough, who had been at Atari as a sales guy and started with a bunch of uh, video game people, a company called Worlds of Wonder, and they had Teddy Ruxpin, the talking, the talking bear, mm-hmm. which was the talk of the toy business way back in the early 80s. And they had laser tag, which is the, the gun that shot uh, a light beam at someone with another laser tag. So those two products made Worlds of Wonder, you know, just like uh, Cabbage Patch made Coleco, made Worlds mm-hmm. of Wonder into a hot electronic um <clears throat> toy, I'd say, toy and doll company. But Don Kingsborough overspent. He wasn't very frugal. They ran into financial problems. It went out of business. But I thought there was a great opportunity for a company with an established brand name who managed properly and did good product development and marketing to become uh, a hot uh, electronic toy and game company. Uh, In other words, not just games, but electronic toys and games. Mm -hmm. So I said to Jack and Sam, uh, I'll do the marketing. Uh, I'll do the job for you uh, with Atari video games and trying to bring them back. But I want to start a new division called Entertainment Electronics. And I wanted to have Worlds of Wonder type products and build a whole range of toys and games that are electronic, but not necessarily console and computer and handheld traditional games. So they said, okay, you can do that. And we also want you to be the marketing guy on the computer side. Um, I'm not an engineer. I didn't love computers from an engineering standpoint. <laughs> and uh, after I took the job at Atari and Jack and I fought a lot uh, about what to do on the computer side, he said, the resolution to our problem is I'll do all the computer stuff. You just do the video game stuff and the entertainment electronic stuff, and you don't have to do sales and marketing for computers. So I said, fine. And uh, basically, my job became, um, with everyone else who was on the video game side, we only had about eight people. We generated uh, several hundred million dollars in sales around the new 2600 Atari at a low price and uh, attempting to do the 7800. We also, Jack had an idea that you could do a combined low-end computer and uh, hot video game console. Um, And uh, so he wanted us to try a product called the XE computer. Uh, And his thinking was, don't have game players buy just a video game, a dedicated video game, and have starting computer players or owners just buy a beginning computer, let's, you know, let's build a computer that's uh, powerful enough 
to do the basic stuff, uh, but also can be positioned as the best game system. And let's sell this two-in-one product and see if we can steal customers away from the Nintendos and the uh, um, Ataris and the well, not not the Nintendos and the Mattels who are just buying game consoles and steal them away from the Commodore people uh, and the Apple people who are buying beginning computers. In other words, he thought there could be a two-in-one product. We tried Mm -hmm. it. It didn't make it. But to make a long story short, um, we did generate a lot of money for Jack to put behind development of the SD computer. Uh, The SD computer was success in Europe. It was a dismal failure in the U.S. Nobody who was a retailer trusted Jack Trammell. None of the developers were willing to develop software for the ST because they they thought Jack would never spend enough money to build a big franchise for the product so developers wouldn't get royalties and it wouldn't be worth the amount of money they put in to build the software because they wouldn't get enough back. Um, The retailers said Jack would never spend uh, what he's supposed to spend on advertising. Why should they carry his product in distribution and give up shelf space if he wasn't going to play his role and uh, okay uh, the right kind of television budgets to make the ST well-known and get it off the shelves. So uh, basically Mm -hmm. that's what happened. Um, We couldn't get distribution on the ST computer. We did a good job generating some money and providing the 2600 to those who couldn't pay $149 or $199 for a Nintendo game system. We sold the... uh, a 2600 for a low price. We had a snazzy, uh, eye-catching, memorable commercial, and uh, it was all about supporting Jack's wishes on the computer side. So uh, the challenge there was, how do you get developers to develop new games for the Atari 2600 and 7800? And uh, uh, that was when there was a lull in the game business and some, some players were playing computer games. That was Electronic Arts getting started, Spectrum Holobyte, Microprose, Data East, and um, Epics was competing and actually outsold, which some people don't know, outsold uh, Electronic Arts for several years or months at least um, on the uh, action side of computer games. We had a game called Jumpman. We had uh, summer games, winter games, California games. We had um, Pit Stop, which is a concept of mine, for an mm-hmm. auto race game where uh, thinking was part of it, not just racing around the track, but you had to uh, keep an eye on your gas and your tire wear and decide when to bring your car into the pits uh, and hope that you could do the pit stuff fast enough to get back on the track. So it was an action strategy game, strategy being defined as a thinking element within the game that allowed you to win or lose. And uh, we had uh, a logo at Epics for the company of the thinker, Rodan's thinker with a joystick in his hands. We did a lot to generate all kinds of new product lines for Epics. And why am I talking about that? Um, <laughs> be, be, because because we, uh, we were a developer deciding who we wanted to support in terms, in terms of computer companies with our software. And when I got to Atari, um, we had to find, you know, determine how we could get memorable titles out to the consumer to make them happy with the game offering 
that went with the Atari 2600 and 7800. And uh, it dawned on us that since computer games had been hot, why didn't we do what had been done in the video game era prior to that uh, when at Coleco and uh, the other companies, you wanted to get the home versions of the hottest arcade games. So you wanted to get Donkey Kong, which we put with ColecoVision as a built-in piece of software. You wanted to be able to offer the consumer the hottest arcade titles in those days. That was the late 70s, early 80s. Um, so you got Pac-Man and you got Donkey Kong uh, and you got the exclusive rights to the home version. And that got people into wanting to buy the console because like with ColecoVision, if you wanted to play Donkey Kong at home, you had to buy ColecoVision because Donkey Kong was not offered yet on Intellivision or Atari. Uh, we had the rights. We eventually made it available after six months on those systems. But to get people to buy ColecoVision, newer, more powerful hardware system, the only way you could play Donkey Kong at home was if you bought the new ColecoVision. So it became the philosophy at Atari on the 7800, which was the challenge. Nintendo had a lock on all the hot arcade titles. We couldn't get a lot of the hot arcade titles. And so I went to guys like Alan Miller, who came out of Atari, then Activision, and then started a company called um, Help Alan. What was your company? Um, I forget, but he had Hardball, which was a hot baseball game for the mm -hmm. Commodore 64. So we licensed, hard, we licensed uh, Hardball. I went to Bill Staley, who had Flight Simulator on the PC side. We did a Flight Simulator game on the 7800. So the idea was we went to the computer game companies to try to license their hot titles, put them on the 7800, so we could build up a library that would make people willing to and want to buy the 7800 and would, would make developers more interested in producing games specifically for the 7800. So uh, that's how I got to Atari. Uh, why did I go there? Um, for the reasons I told you, but I also was given stock options that vested every year. I was there three and a half years, and initially everyone thought Atari stock was going to be very hot. It went from three to, I think, 13. And unfortunately, when the ST had its problems, it fell like crazy in Atari after I left, went out of business. Um, but uh, the stock bumped a lot. That was a nice incentive. And um, that's the Atari story. Mm. Awesome. Um, the last, before we finish up, and I want to hear about your career with Sega and the amazing things you did with them, was I heard a story you told previously about how Atari almost had the Genesis. What um, what happened with that? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I forgot that. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, no. I love the story, and that's why I want to hear it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, what, what happened What, what happened was um, Dave Rosen, who's a remarkable guy, uh, was in the Korean War and stayed in Asia after the war was over and got very interested in arcade games in Asia and also in... Um, uh, what were the electronic games they had in Japan? Um, Kachinko, Pachinko, wh mm -hmm. whatever the names of the 
help me, whatever the names of those games was. So Dave, Dave stayed in, uh, in Asia and got involved with the people at all the electronic companies in Asia, including Sega. And Dave became one of the co-chairmen of Sega, um, and moved back to the United States, uh, became a private investor, but remained the co-chairman of Sega. Uh, and so he was responsible for building the Sega company and Sega market in the U.S. Um, he's probably in his mid-80s to late-80s now. Um, I knew him because I was in the video game industry. And... Uh, um, at one point, he called me uh, when I was at Atari and said, uh, we, Sega, have developed uh, a hot new system. Uh, we have this little office in America, and uh, they haven't been too good at marketing, and uh, they don't have any software capability. Um, we're wondering whether we should come out with um, the Sega hardware system ourselves for America, uh, master system it was called, I think, at that point, um, or whether we should look for some kind of partnership or alliance. Um, he said, would Atari have any interest in um, licensing the Sega hardware and technology? And, of course, he was thinking what you immediately thought or what I thought and the guys in the division I was in thought, which was this would put Atari back on the map as an innovator uh, if we could have the most powerful new hardware system in the video game category, and uh, we could then, you know, become the Atari of old again, get the support because of the superiority of the product, get the support from developers, and we could compete against Nintendo, and we could be the first 16-bit game system. So I raced into Jack Tramiel's office. I said, uh, you know, we've got to take a meeting with um, Dave Rosen and Nakayama, uh, the head in Japan. Uh, they have a proposal that I think would be great. Jack said, fine. Uh, we set up a meeting. Everybody got very excited in the meeting um, about the prospect. Uh, Dave Rosen uh, told us what he would want in terms of outright cash uh, or cash advance and royalty for us to take over the technology. And uh, Jack said, um, it sounds great. Give us a little while to think about it. Um, within about a week, Jack said, I don't want to commit money to that. I don't think it's a good idea. You know, I want Atari to be a computer company, not a game company. And there went uh, the, <laughs> the Sega technology and uh, Sega decided to, as, as you can imagine, as you know, decided mm -hmm. to build the Genesis themselves and introduce the Genesis uh, <coughs> under the Sega name and get back into the business in a big way uh, in the U.S. So coincidentally, I was asked to do that uh, uh, subsequent to we at Atari being offered the opportunity to take the Genesis technology and make it into an Atari 16-bit game system, which would have changed the whole makeup of the competitive structure of the game business, hopefully 
if Jack saw the potential for it and if Jack would be looser with the purse strings than he had been previously, which he probably wouldn't have been because I didn't mention to you that was also in the articles you saw that we had a deal to make the first entertainment electronics product with Midway and the game company because they had developed a technology for laser gun gun products that were far superior to the laser tag product that Worlds of Wonder had made five years previously. So uh, they came to me uh, and asked me to put on my hat as the entertainment electronics guy. And that was going to be our first outside product that we then took and made into a product for Atari's new entertainment electronics division. Jack said, fine, we'll do it. Two months later, he changed his mind. That was after after we had started working to finish the product. And uh, that was after Williams had, uh, you know, stopped work themselves, uh, anticipating that we would introduce the product for Christmas or whatever that year was. Jack backed out two months later, uh, midway, uh, had to take the product back. They missed Christmas. They didn't think very kindly of us for breaking a promise and breaking a commitment. And, uh, you know, so there went the entertainment electronics division that Michael Katz was excited about starting. So, uh, those are two missed opportunities that disappointed me personally. And one that definitely would have made Atari some money if the Genesis had become an Atari product, not a Sega product. Yeah. Thank you for your, Oh yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, basically yeah. Same thing. Uh, I grew up Sega, Sega Genesis was my first console. So, um, for me, so yeah, I think we're both like really excited to hear about it and stuff, but it sounds like that, that kind of naturally kind of led into you going into Sega kind of full force a little bit, everything that you've told us. So, well, not really. I, uh, after the three and a half years at Atari, I had had enough working for a company, large company. Uh, I had sort of burnt out on the video game business and thought I might want to try some completely different things. Mm. So uh, I, I announced to Sam Trammell, who was the president of Atari, one day when he asked me what my plans were for the division for the next six months. I took a, reached into my drawer of my desk in my office. He was sitting across from me. I put on a cap that I had had made up that said MVK World Tour 19, uh, whatever the year was. And he said, what is that hat? And I said, this is my plan for the next six months. I'm, I'm, I'm quitting and I'm taking a, uh, a sabbatical and I'm taking a three month trip around the world. I guess I said, I'm quitting and taking a three month trip around the world. So, um, um, that was what my hat said. That's what I wanted to do. That's what I did do. Mm-hmm. Um, I came, I came back from the trip, not knowing what I was going to do next, thinking it'd be very easy to change to different product categories and do marketing for other kinds of companies or get into special retailing or whatever. And, uh, I eventually learned that you're branded. Uh, if you've done something for at least 10 years, especially if it's, at the beginning of your career, you're mm-hmm. branded with some people as someone who represents that particular category or that particular function. So I guess I was branded as a video game marketing guy or a video video game executive. 
And uh, uh, so I, I got a call after a few months of uh, looking around to do other things, uh, either energetically or not. I got a call from Dave Rosen, and he said, uh, we decided to do the 16-bit game ourselves. We need someone who knows the video game category and knows how to introduce new products to introduce uh, the Genesis properly uh, in the U.S. Nintendo has a 95% share. We need to get a share of market against Nintendo. We're willing to put resources behind it. Are you interested? And uh, I guess I said okay because I ended up doing it. <laughs> so uh, um, Sega had no software development department at all in the U.S. at that time. It was about 30, 30 people, mainly in uh, operations and in sales. Um, I forget what other functional areas, but there was clearly nobody in, in game development. So mm -hmm. the biggest challenge, because when you have a game system, it's not the console that sells the consumer, it's the game titles and the mm -hmm. games you have. And you've got to always have a library of hot titles. And Sega had none. So, uh, the spawning place for the hottest uh, the hottest titles, as you well know, were the hot arcade titles. And uh, Nintendo, again, had a lock on all the hottest arcade titles because of their relationship with all the uh, hot arcade developers and companies, which were mostly Japanese companies. So uh, despite legal suits, brought by Sega and Atari against Nintendo, we never were able to get a judgment in court that uh, <laughs> that mm. it was because of that advantage Nintendo had that built them such a dominant share of market. But it clearly was the reason because people are buying game titles. Uh, it's great to have a superior system, but once again, if you don't have the hot games that people want to play on the system, they don't need the system. So the challenge was we need software development people that can develop good games. We need outside independent developers that, uh, based on their hope for a strong stream of royalties, can develop software for the uh, the new system. And uh, so, you know, the challenge became uh, getting the software. So uh, I, I hired to be head of development, a development head that I'd known for the previous 10 years at other companies. Uh, whose family, his two sons were also in development. Ken Balthaser was his name. And we tasked ourselves to hiring uh, a staff of at least 20 or 30 or 40 game designers to work internally at Sega and uh, to go out and court the hot independent developers to make games for the Sega Genesis and promising them a decent royalty structure and the fact that we would heavily support the new system to get it established in the U.S. So that was the challenge. Um, the challenge from a marketing standpoint was uh, if you can't get the hottest titles because Nintendo has a lock on them, what mm -hmm. are you going to do to get the attention of the consumer? And uh, it occurred to me that um, we couldn't get the arcade titles but we could try to work in categories that Nintendo wasn't that strong in and also in some way create interest in the categories 
uh, or in the products that we could come out with. And uh, Nintendo, being a Japanese company, was not that strong in sports, so there was an opening opportunity there uh, for developing hot sports games, uh, including, you know, well, auto race and flying games weren't sports games, but we were looking for that kind of that kind of a gap. We were we were looking for also a cartoon character like Pac-Man, like Donkey Kong, and the agreement was that they would try to develop and find that kind of category, or I'm sorry, that kind of character in Japan. Uh, it eventually became Sonic the Hedgehog. So that became about a year later after I had left um, Sega. Uh, that became the Pac-Man and the Donkey Kong of Sega in the cartoon character game side. But that left a gap and an opening and a need for Sega in the U.S. to excel in other categories. So we highlighted game, we highlighted sports because mm -hmm. we determined that if we could get hot sports personalities or hot personalities, period, and get an exclusive with those personalities, whether they came from sports or entertainment or wherever, then we'd have an exclusive character and marketing story to tell, assuming we could make a really good game using those characters, those personalities, I mean, as a as the entities that we had exclusive with. Football was the hottest sports category. Joe Montana was the hottest sports figure. And um, so I asked the Japanese if uh, I could go after Joe Montana to try to get an exclusive uh, with Montana for three to five years uh, and Sega. Um, they didn't feel like spending the money that uh, they were surprised Montana wanted. I think it was $1.2 million uh, advance against royalties, but they finally agreed. We beat out Nintendo. We didn't know we were competing directly with Nintendo, but Howard Lincoln told me later we were. Uh, we beat them out by either offering more or because Montana liked the idea of, uh, you know, being the key personality with a new system and with Sega. So we got Joe Montana uh, as the first hot personality. Uh, we also got Pat Riley for basketball, um, the coach. We got Tommy Lasorda for baseball. We got Buster Douglas, who was the boxing champion for six months, but that was good enough because it was yeah. fitting into our strategy. Uh, so he lost in his second fight, but who cares? We hadn't paid him much anyhow. Um, <laughs> And so the whole the whole concept was um, we would have a line of software product that was well-known due to the licenses, and the licenses would be personalities. We already had Michael Jackson, which was a license that was gotten before I got to Sega. So we had a personality in the entertainment area. Uh, the game never did too well, but, you know, he was a personality. Um, and... Uh, we had a system that was superior to theirs in power. And uh, I thought, you know, like it had been true other times in my career, it was a perfect opportunity for a competitive commercial uh, where we could make claims of superiority against Nintendo. And what could the claims be? 
the claims could be that we had a system that was better in graphic sound and animation than the uh, 8-bit system that Nintendo had. And um, what would the claim be? The claim would be on the licensing side that we have uh, licenses and personalities that have been turned into games that we had exclusively and that Nintendo could not claim and did not have. Do we think that was a stronger pitch than having the hottest arcade titles? No, but it was the the best thing we could think of to try to compete with them and to try to generate awareness and recall and purchase for Genesis. So uh, the ad agency, I think it was Bozell and Jacobs that I inherited because Dave Rosen had a close relationship with them personally. Uh, we met with them. They were in Los Angeles. We were in San Francisco. We had meetings once a week. And after about three weeks of beating on them and beating on Rosen, <laughs> um, I said, I want a competitive positioning, a hard, direct competitive positioning. They were reluctant to do anything competitive because they just didn't like comparison positionings. And it was ridiculous because that's what we needed to have. But interestingly, I found out during the process that it was considered poor etiquette in Japan for mm -hmm. a Japanese company to directly compete in marketing and advertising uh, and denigrate their competition. Um, but in this case, we convinced them by virtue of what we came up with, we meaning Bozell Jacobs and us, uh, would be the competitive positioning and the competitive stance. And it, it came from some copywriters at Bozell who got tired of my rejecting every non-competitive approach they presented. And in a meeting toward the end of it, when I kept saying, no, 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 it's not good, it's not strong, uh, they, out of one of their mouths, or they pulled out a, a board that had on it, um, I guess it's five words, Genesis does what Nintendo don't. Uh, and I said, brilliant, brilliant, <laughs> yeah. right on target, hard hitting, exactly what we need. It talks to the product being superior. It talks to our licensing uh, personalities being um, exclusive. Uh, and we can build a great competitive campaign and position in marketing and everything we do uh, with Genesis does what Nintendo don't. Um, hmm. So that became the battle cry. Um, the open opening salvo was supposed to be um, Genesis ready to go with great, a uh, few great titles for Christmas in uh, 1990. Uh, unfortunately, um, the Joe Montana football game ran behind development schedule and came out maybe a one a month later than Christmas. It was out in January. Uh, of 90, so Christmas of 89, I guess it was, and January of 90. And um, it was a real hit as a as a game, and it led to uh, us being able to get other developers, other software titles before uh, a year later, Sonic the Hedgehog came out and was a hit on the cartoon side. And... Uh, how did we get Joe Montana football finally developed and into a product? That's a story that I think you read about Peter also. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't have a good football development team who was working fast enough 
to be able to develop the Montana game in time for November of 89, which we hope to be able to ship with the product in November, December timeframe. Uh, we found out in, I guess, August or September that the game, which was being done on the outside by Mediagenic, uh, which was a software company uh, that was making software at the time, but had a few good developers who knew football. We didn't know about the internal problems they were having with this development team. And it turned out that they were way behind on the development of, of uh, the football game that we had okayed, that we had liked, that had been presented to us in storyboard form and all of that. So I found out one day that we should really believe the fact that we could not get uh, that football game ready, not in November, not in December, maybe not in January, maybe never, because there are problems that were going on at Mediagenic. Uh, and yet the Japanese had put up 1.2 million bucks uh, at my request, basically initially, and everything was going to be riding on Joe Montana. So mm -hmm. it occurred to me that there was a little company down the road called Electronic Arts that was making a lot of very good games. And I knew Trip Hawkins, and they had a football game um, of their own, which was the, uh, why am I blanking? Um, who's the coach? Madden. Oakland Raiders. Madden. Mad Madden. Yeah. Madden football. So they had, they had the best computer football game, um, Joe Madden football. And it occurred to me that uh, I knew that Tripp wanted to support the Sega Genesis because uh, he thought it was going to be a good new system based on power uh, and 16-bit technology alone. Uh, I, it occurred to me that uh, maybe he had some backup football games that he might be willing to sell to Sega to bail us out, and maybe he could get a sweetheart deal uh, from Sega on the royalties that most developers had to pay for games they developed to play on the new Genesis. So the trade-off in my mind would be that uh, we'd pay him whatever he wanted if he had a backup game, and uh, maybe he wouldn't have to pay uh, any royalty or a partial royalty for every game he made and sold that would play on the Genesis. Mm. So I called him. I called him, and uh, he uh, either thought about it on the phone call or 24 hours later, and said, yes, we do have a backup game. Yes, we can finish it within a few months. Yes, I am willing to do the deal if you do something attractive to make it worthwhile. So the first Joe Montana football game, uh, little known fact, actually was made for Sega by Electronic Arts and was their backup to the Madden football game uh, that they had developed themselves uh, and were going to offer for the Genesis. Mm. So, uh, as it as it turned <laughs> out, Joe Montana made over four million dollars on royalties as the licensor personality uh, for Joe Montana football. So the Japanese didn't have to worry about the one point two million dollars they gave them in an advance. And all I think about when I remember the little party we had when we officially made Joe the deal 
you know, made a deal with Joe. He was in his typical blue jeans and T-shirt. We had a lot in San Francisco for 10 or 12 people. Joe, uh, I handed Joe a check for $1.2 million. I think he folded the check, put it in the back pocket of his jeans. And to this day, I always imagine him throwing the jeans at some point that <laughs> week into the washing machine and, uh, you know, taking them out of the dryer and looking at a disintegrated check for $1.2 million <laughs> and saying to myself, well, you know, if that really happened, I guess he didn't care anyhow. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, that's a that's a joke, but uh, we did give him one point two million dollars, and he did put the check in his back pocket. Yeah, I think we'll bring it home from here. Now you've been more than gracious to come on. Um, I w- I kind of wanted to get your story about what happened with Sega, but you said fifteen minutes, so I think we can. Um, I could put that in like. The... Well, I, I'll I'll I'll, get, I'll I'll give it to you in a nutshell. Sure. Um, and you read about this too. Uh-huh. The Japanese weren't quite. The Japanese were either very impatient, or weren't quite knowledgeable on how long it takes to gain market share when a company you're competing with has a 95 percent share of market. <laughs> so, uh, without knowing that, or thinking that, or being able to believe in it, they gave me the goal of selling a million units in the first year that Genesis was introduced. The first 12 months. Uh, which anyone who knew this market would have considered ambitious. And uh, the Japanese phrase is yakumandai. That means a million units. And that's the only phrase of Japanese I ever learned (laughs) because I was supposed to religiously be saying that to myself every morning when I woke up, uh, yakumandai. And uh, so we weren't tracking to yak one million. We were tracking to about 500,000. Uh, Nakayama, who I never really, you know, had much affinity for, nor did he for me, apparently, um, you know, uh, thought we should be selling a lot more and the process should have been taking a lot uh, shorter, quicker route than it was. Uh, so he knew Tom Kalinsky from his, uh, his dealings with him at Mattel and Matchbox. Tom was at both toy companies. And uh, he ran into Tom, who was unemployed at the time, in uh, in Japan for some conference or meeting. And uh, he asked Tom, who he liked, uh, whether he'd be interested in taking my job. And I guess Tom said yes. And Nakayama thought that uh, Tom could accelerate the whole process, even though Tom had never worked, uh, never worked specifically in the video game category. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Tom got the job from Nakayama. Dave Rosen told me he didn't agree, and he fought vehemently for me. But um, Tom got the job to, uh, you know, take over. Uh, I got canned, and uh, uh, Japan finished their Sonic the Hedgehog, and uh, everything we did to build, uh, build the company in the U.S., build the effort behind the Genesis, um, the groundwork was all laid basically in the year of 1989 and early 90, and it came to fruition uh, with Sonic and with the establishment of the awareness created by uh, Montana, the whole Genesis does when non- Nintendo don't positioning and all that. So anyone who knows the true facts knows that we, 
you know, the pioneers at Sega, you know, got all the groundwork laid and got everything moving in the right direction. And if other people want to take the credit for it, that's what business is all about. And I'm used to, I'm used to it. So, uh, um, that's the story. Yeah. It's, uh, so I guess it's a little bit, a little bittersweet for you. You know, you, you know, in your heart that you paved the way for the success of Sega, even though people are, are jumping on taking credit for it. Um, is that kind of like how you feel looking back on it, that you kind of feel responsible for the success of the Sega? Cause it pretty much after a few years after that, I mean, once Super Nintendo came out, I felt like they didn't know where to pivot at that point. And then, uh, Super Nintendo kind of just overtook everything that you built. Yeah, well, you know, without <clears throat> we did all the things that had worked previously in the game category, which I was more familiar with from a marketing standpoint, I guess, than anybody. So, you know, packing a hot cartridge in with a hardware system, we did that at Coleco with mm-hmm. Donkey Kong. Nothing new, nothing new was done at Sega after I left. It was all just building on the base and doing typical basic marketing things as people became more aware of Sega, Sega's new product, generated trial, and that led to purchase. And all the basic advertising, PR, you know, building more support with the development, that's all SOP. Anyone could have done that. Uh, it took no imagination. It was just sound, basic marketing. And, uh, you know, the pages I referred you to in the book has Howard Lincoln talking about us having built all the basis for that in advance of Kalinsky. And, uh, you know, he didn't have to tell me. I knew it. But things like that happen in business. So I'm gratified, gratified by what happened. You know, uh, with me, it's all about looking yourself in the mirror and, uh, you know, recognizing what you as an individual and your group and your team and your, you know, coworkers have done. And if someone else in business wants to take credit that happens all the time with certain people uh we have a president i believe in the united <laughs> states who uh does does that does that every day uh, so uh, so you know so be it um mm-hmm. i went on to start a executive search firm the first one ever specifically for the video game business it was tremendously successful i got 50 client companies the first one was microsoft where i got a search for seven people right out the gate as soon as I started my my search business. Why? Because uh, a guy named Tony Garcia, who had been a game tester at Epix when he was 18 years old, who we gave his first job in the computer game industry to, 10 years later, was the head of the games group uh, at Microsoft. Not Xbox. There was no Xbox. There was a video game group uh, established at X, at uh, Microsoft, established by Tony, and Tony became the head of it. As soon as I told him I was starting the search firm, he gave me an assignment for three brand managers in the games group and four producers. We completed the search in about three months, um, faster and at less expense to Microsoft than any search firm they had ever used for anything. And uh, I subsequently, in the next two or three years, had 50 clients, basically every video game company or entertainment company or publishing company that was getting into the business. And uh, we placed 200 
executives mainly uh, wow. because it was all about managers, directors, and above. And that was done with Michael Katz and Associates, which was at most Michael Katz and one associate <laughs> most, <laughs> most of the time. But, but it was easy because in executive search in those days, if you came from an industry and you knew everyone in it, you knew the heads of the company so you could get assignments, you knew all the key players so you could steal them from one company and entice them to join another. So there was nothing to it. Uh, and uh, I didn't think a lot of... Uh, <laughs> I didn't think a lot of the industry in terms of what I was doing in terms of degree of difficulty, but uh, it was perfect timing because nobody was doing it at the time specifically for the games industry. I mean, I, I helped the DreamWorks guy re recruit their first four executive producers when they decided they were going to start a, a games division, which became defunct later. But we wooed the most, uh, you know, the most well-known Richard Hillemans, one of them, uh, executive producers from the likes of Electronic Arts and Acclaim and Activision and everywhere else. And, uh, you know, it, it was great. Um, it was great. It was easy. It was fun. And it kept me in touch in a non-aggravating uh, way with the category. So I, Yeah. I just wanted to like say, because I know like we kind of we almost ended just on the whole Sega bit and things like that. But just listening to like everything, I just have like a tremendous amount of respect because you said it way at the beginning of the earlier in the interview where you said you kind of came from this marketing world, you know, with buyers and things like that. And you trust like your gut and things like that and in your drive and your passion. And so just have like a lot of respect because it seems like you've never lost that in like your whole career. You're just like very... You know, you pay attention, you're into it, you trust your gut. Thank you. Thank you. But now it's time for you guys in the next three minutes to tell me something about yourselves, <laughs> why you're doing this, when you started, why you're doing it, and what it's going to lead to. Ruthie, do you, so you the really pressure is on. Do you want to go first or do you want me? I can me? go first. Go I, can, I can go first. Yeah. Um, why am I doing this, uh, with Pete? Uh, one, I think I love to talk to people. I, I have a tremendous amount of passion for people and people being open about their stories and their lives and stuff. And where do I want to go with this? I have a hugely creative mind. I've always been driven be, to be creative and to create things. I'm just a creator. And I found that my medium that I prefer is, um, uh, creating audio based theater. So like podcasts and things like that, more theatrical than this lovely conversational nerd podcast, but I do love this too. Um, so really I've just been getting all the experience I can and learning the business and trusting my gut. And so one day I would love to have my own production company of sorts. And I've started that on a very small scale and, I'm doing it around a 60-hour-a-week job. I moved to a big city for opportunities, and it's been a wild ride the last year. So I hope one day that I will be able to look back and know that all this work was worth it and and that I trusted my gut when, I don't know, when the, I guess when the going felt good, I've just always followed it. So I guess that's why Great. a lot of things that you've said have resonated with me because I'm like, he just trusted his gut. I've, I can trust my gut too. <laughs> and I'll be good. Um, yeah, good. For, well, good luck. Keep, Thank you. Keep me advised. Your <laughs> turn, Peter. 
Uh, well, for me, I have a fairly successful job in IT security. I work for the University of North Carolina. So this is kind of like a side thing I've done that seems to have grown since September. I've dabbled in, I've been doing this for over a year with some friends, but this is the first time I did it on my own. And Ruthie and I have met online and we hit it off. And I, I, I just find the stories interesting in the industry, just movies, TV, video games. And I like making other people happy. And I, I just hope that, uh, my passion for this, I guess Ruthie can attest, you know, is I'm very passionate about um, the industry as a whole. Um, I'm happy where I'm at with my job. I hope I can become uh, a CISO one day, Chief Information Security Officer. Uh, that's my goal for a career. It's a boring job. I find this way more interesting. So if this takes off, um, I'd like to build on it and create like a whole platform, a website, uh, a new site, um, sort of like what Nerdist has done. Uh, and it's kind of like what I, where I want to go with it. I'm not 100% sure yet, but it's just a lot of fun. Uh, meeting people like you is it's just amazing. I feel like I get to document, you know, sort of this part of uh, history. You know, it's out there now. It's documented your successes, what you've done, what you contributed. So I just think it's really cool. And that's kind of like where I, where I take, where I stand right now. And how about the following for your podcast? And uh, are they on a regular basis? <clears throat> Who's your audience? What the kind of numbers, if you have them, does it generate, et cetera? Uh, so it's not it's not too bad right now. I went from like you know like ten like when I started in September, I went from like <laughs> ten you know a month to now where I get ten a day, uh, especially since Ruthie jumped on. Um, when I the interview that I linked you to to that voice actor, uh, he kind of I just randomly emailed him and he agreed to come on, and that's over at five hundred plays now. Um, and it's just every day I'm getting five or six from that one. So it's just growing. It's like a natural growth, and it's really nice to see. I'm getting comments from people, and I see the, I guess, five stars on Apple Podcasts right now. So it's just so much fun, and I just hope other people enjoy it, really, because that's why I want, partly why I do it. And how do you generate awareness? Just um, from the titles of the podcast? I actually, so what I did was for that episode that I did with David Hader, I went to subreddits, and even though they don't like self-promotion, I went to the Metal Gear Solid subreddit, and I posted it there, and that's when it shot up. Uh, I do Twitter, um, I do Instagram, I have my own website that I created, uh, what else do I do? <laughs> um, I actually created, I haven't implemented it yet, but I had created a Twitter bot that would automatically uh, tweet uh, at certain times of the day, like I figure in the morning when people are driving to work at lunch and when they're driving home. So I time out these random tweets to go out um, via a bot that I made. It's not very invasive. I know we say bots on Twitter. Um, and that's kind of the avenue I've taken. But I, I what I've been doing, too, is I, I search on Twitter for like common themes. Like I'll, I'll search for like Sega Genesis and then I'll post. I'll just... I'll send this tweet to someone that's tweeting about Sega Genesis just manually whenever I get some free time, and that actually shoots up plays. So it's a lot of different avenues I've taken, and I think it's helped. Um, and that's just, I just kind of think how I can, you know, intertwine. I also do a lot of uh, stuff with other podcasts, too. Like, hey, you know, if you, you know, retweet this or, you know, like my tweet or like my podcast, I'll like yours. There's a big community of podcasters, too. Mm-hmm. Good. Okay. So, <clears throat> and how long will you be at UNC? Uh, actually, I just hit a year um, this month. I was in the army like you. I did six years. Uh, I got out in 2016. I just I got my bachelor's degree, and then I used my GI Bill to get my master's degree. Um, and then I got a good job. Uh, and pretty much, I, I just love this 
just I love you know nerdy stuff. I've been a part of my life. My dad had laser disc players. He bought me my game consoles. I remember playing Zelda. I remember playing uh, <laughs> Missile Command with my dad uh, uh-huh. uh, on Atari. We played that a lot. The two games I remember the most on Atari because I was very young was Missile Command and Space Invaders. So we played those a lot, uh-huh. and then we put a lot of Nintendo uh-huh. together. So yeah, great. But. Okay, well, keep keep me appraised of what you guys are up to and how you're doing, <laughs> and you. good good luck on everything. Yes, thank you thank so you. much. Uh, really appreciate you coming okay. on. <laughs> My pleasure. Bye bye. Right. Bye. Bye. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to Nerds Adulting, a podcast where grown up nerds discuss being an adult and how nerd culture influenced us and still is. On this podcast, I invite special guests to discuss certain topics that include parenting violent video games, television, movies, streamers, game developing, and anything else considered part of nerd culture. I've been a nerd my entire life, and even as an adult, I'm still vested in nerd culture, whether it be TV, movies, video games, or technology. I'm also a parent who unsurprisingly rubbed off on my children, who are now developing their own nerdy interests as well. I love the aspects of nerd culture and how it intertwines with us now as adults. How do we juggle our hobbies along with being a husband or wife, our jobs, being a parent? This is what this podcast is about, how we still are nerds even as adults. You know, nerd culture is mainstream now. So when you use the word nerd derogatorily, it means you're the one that's out of the zeitgeist.